You guys ready? I'm ready. All right, if you've got your, Bi your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Exodus chapter 3. Miranda, if you're in here, why don't you get, why don't you get up here? And where is she? Okay, I was like, I was afraid she ran. Uh, um, so something that we started for our series with Exodus um, is that we want to we read um, from the Word in and, and context, because this is a story. It's not like an epistle where they go kind of verse by verse. This is a story. And so before I start preaching on it, I want you to be able to hear it in, in context. And so, Miranda, thank you for, for reading it for us today. Okay. So, yeah, Exodus, Exodus 3, right? Exodus 3, got it. Yeah. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of a land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression on which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to the Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is the name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go on a three days' journey to the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give his people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you will not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Thank you. Nice job. When I asked Miranda earlier this week, hey, do you want to read some scripture before church? And I was, she's like, oh yeah. I'm like, okay, chapter three. You're going to be reading for four minutes straight. <laughs> so that's, a, that's intimidating if you don't do that very often. So good job. And I don't know if I said this at the beginning. If you're new today, my name's JT. I'm one of the pastors here. Obviously, we just talked about that. I'm so glad that you're here today. Um, and I'm, gl I'm glad you're here specifically because we're in the middle of our series called called Kingdom to Kingdom on the, the book of Exodus. And it's just been amazing what God's been doing through this series so far. And I love that she got to read that today, again, because I want you to see that in context. 
Um, really, because this is one story, right? Like, I didn't want to split up all that God was doing with Moses, and we, we, did, we actually did kind of have to. Chapter 4 is a continuation of, of Moses and God, right? And so next week will be kind of part 2. So if you're new today and you came for part 1 of this sermon on God talking to Moses, then you have to come back next week. So you'll get a really good, a, a really good slice of what this church is like. All right, so before we jump in, I got to quote Lord of the Rings first. Um, I think this is the second time I've quoted Lord of the Rings this year. Well, technically the first time I quoted the Silmarillion, but we're not going to get all technical. Um, but the fact that I've only quoted Lord of the Rings or quoted J.R.R. Tolkien. Tolkien, I was waiting for somebody to correct me. I've said Tolkien my whole life. I want to say Tolkien. It's the American version of his name. Um, so anyway, J.R.R. Tolkien, you're lucky that I don't quote him and C.S. Lewis just basically constantly. Um, but I am going to quote him today. And so whether you're a fan of Lord of the Rings, the book or the movie or not, for you to understand this quote, you have to have just a little bit of context. So if you're not a fantasy person, just stick with me because it's one of my favorite quotes in, in all of his work. And so here's, here's the really brief context if you've never seen the movie. There, there is this evil dark lord, all-powerful dark lord, and he makes this ring. And anybody who wears this ring is eventually corrupted and fully enslaved. And it's this beautiful picture, this beautiful allegory of sin. Like, that's what sin does to us. We, we give ourselves over to sin. The more we give into it, the more it corrupts us, the more it completely enslaves us. So we get this beautiful picture of sin through the ring. Well, the only place this ring can be destroyed, the only place this, this all, heart of all evil can be unmade is in Mordor. Again, if, you, if you're looking for it, it's this beautiful picture of who Jesus is, the only one who can unmake our sin, the only one who can destroy that, that slavery inside of us. So there's this huge council in the book that happens. All of the most powerful people in the world, not all of them, but a lot of the most powerful people in the world, the good guys, gather and talk about, what are we going to do about this ring? Because they know they can't take it themselves because they're the most powerful people in the world and the ring corrupts and enslaves. So if they get enslaved by the ring, if they get corrupted by the ring, then then their good is going to be turned into evil. Their, their power is going to be used for evil, and so they don't want to touch it. They don't have anything to do with it. It's just too dangerous. So then what happens? You know the story, a hobbit named Frodo speaks up. I'm almost done. I promise. A hobbit named Frodo speaks up. And, and the hobbits are like tiny people, right? They're a race of tiny people. I mean, Frodo is less than four feet tall. He's from a place that almost no one has heard of, a place that has no power. He has no power, no control, no earthly strength whatsoever. In fact, he is basically the most unimaginable person possible, says to, in front of all of these overwhelmingly powerful people, I will take the ring, though I do not know the way. Man, I love that response. The, the least powerful person in the room by far says, I will take it, though I do not know the way. And so as we jump into our passage today that Miranda read for us in Exodus 3, we're, we're, we're finally going to start this epic story. I know we've been talking about like, how Exodus is the most epic story in the Bible, maybe, arguably, it really is. And we've, we've kind of started it, but this week we're, we're really starting it, and it's going to help define the rest of the series. Because um, the real hero enters the story today, and then this story never relents until about chapter 18 or 19. It is just go, go, go from this point on. And here's the main thing I want us to hold on to today. And really one of the things I want us to hold on to the rest of this series is that, that the hero in this story doesn't have power. The hero in this story doesn't really have gifts, gifts and talents worth writing about. That's not what this story is about, that, that Moses has all these gifts and talents. But like Frodo, by this time, you're going to see it in a second, by this time in Moses' story when this happens, he is a nobody. He went from a somebody to an absolute nobody. And what we'll see as this plays out is he doesn't really know at all how he's going to accomplish what God is going to ask him to do. In other words, he doesn't know the way. He's going to know what God's calling him to do, but he doesn't know the way. But in the end, what we're going to see is it's okay because he's not really the hero of the story anyway. We think of Moses as the hero of the story. Moses is not the hero of the story. He doesn't have to know the way that everything is going to play out or, be, or is going to be accomplished because someone else does. Right? He just has to say, I'm, I'm willing to go. And so what we're going to see today is God is simply asking Moses, and through that we can see that, that God is asking us to say to him in, in faith, I will go where you send me, though I may not know the way. That's really what this story is about. 
let's just jump into it, right? We're going to kind of break it down a little bit verse by verse. I want to jump back into verse 1 in chapter 3, and let's read the first six verses of the chapter again. Exodus 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he had led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to, came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. All right, so I want you to think about this for a minute. If you've been with us, you know this. If you know the story, you know this. Moses started off as an adopted prince of Egypt. Right, arguably the most powerful country, most powerful force in the world. He was a prince of Egypt, and now he's in the middle of nowhere living as a shepherd. In Egyptian culture, being a shepherd was about as low as it possibly could get. In fact, some of the stuff that I read, they said that Egyptians would refuse to be a shepherd. They would hire slaves to be shepherds because they refused to even be a shepherd because it was the lowest of the low. Moses has become an absolute nobody in the middle of nowhere. And he's shepherding a flock. But I kind of love it that he's shepherding a flock. We don't have time to spend a lot of time on it today, but it's definitely foreshadowing. Because what was, what was something that Jesus was called? Do you remember? It has to do with sheep, the great shepherd. He was our great shepherd, shepherding the sheep. And this is what Moses is going to become. Like He was this great man, and now he's just a lonely shepherd. But that's what he's going to be. He's going to shepherd the people of God, right? He's going to lead this great flock. And this is what God's about to call him to. But right now, he's in... A place quite, quite, quite a long way from where he started. So can, can we get the map up there? I want you guys just to see this so you can visualize it. I couldn't find a really excellent map. Just ignore all the routes. We'll get there. That's later in Exodus. But all the way to the right over there, do you see Midian? That's where Moses ran off to from Egypt. And so you see Goshen is where all the Israelites are. Goshen then is, is really close to modern-day Cairo, right? So he, he fled all the way to Midian. You can see he fled a long way away because, remember, he was a murderer. Like they wanted to kill him in Egypt because he killed an Egyptian. So he fled all the way to Midian. And now... Look at this. He's, Horeb is right here, Mount Sinai. Horeb, the same location, right? Horeb is a mountain range, and there's Mount Sinai. So he's went all the way over to here, shepherding the flock. And that was pretty common at this time because they're in an arid country, and there's not a lot of pasture. There's not a lot of places for sheep to graze. So a lot of times people, when they would herd their flock as they, as they were raising them up, so then when they would slaughter them or shave them or sell them or whatever else, they would take them far and wide to try to make sure that they had enough to eat. So he's moved his way back towards Egypt. He's a long way from Midian. And when he's out near the mountain called Horeb, that's when he sees the burning bush. And a bush, obviously, if you've heard the story, we just read it, not... Not just a burning bush, but a bush that is not burning up. In a story full of supernatural and miraculous occurrences, this is our first supernatural occurrence in, in the book of Exodus, and they don't stop after this, right? You know the story, it just continues, but this is the big, the big first one. And, and Moses approaches the bush, and of course he would. Do you think you'd approach the bush? I definitely would. I guess it would freak some of us out, right? But if you saw a bush that wasn't burning, and you, you sit there watching, it's not really smoking, it's not really burning up, we'd approach this too. And as he's approaching the bush... He hears God call out to him, Moses, Moses. Now, I don't have time to spin on this today, like the theophany, the presence of God, the appearing of God. But when it says the angel of the Lord here, it means God. Other places in Scripture, when it says the angel of the Lord, it literally means an angel. In this place, when it says the angel of the Lord, it means the, the presence, of, the huge, enormous presence of God narrowed down into a way that he can communicate with someone. In his, he can, we can kind of, Moses can kind of be in his presence. Well, you'll see what I mean here in a second. There's way more to say on that, but we just don't have time. So God calls out Moses, Moses. And in ancient culture, the reason it's repeated twice like this, in ancient culture, when you called out to someone twice like this, it was a sign of deep, deep affection. Right? Not just calling out their name, but you call it twice. It's, a, it's deep affection. It's like you would call out to someone in your family or you call out to a child. And I just love this. 
For other times in Scripture, when God's voice comes and it booms, like it terrifies people, right? Like they cower in fear just at, the, just at hearing the voice of God, hearing the presence of God. But, but in this way, this was a loving father calling out to his child, Moses, Moses. He's not afraid. He approaches and he comes near. And what was Moses' response to God's loving call to him? Here I am. I love that response, right? Here I am. And it makes me wonder, when I, was, when I read this, it makes me wonder for me, for you, if that's our response to God when, he, when we hear him calling us to something, when we feel him calling us to something. I dare say most of us haven't seen something in our life like a burning bush. And I, I think most of us would say we haven't actually heard the audible voice of God. So it's not always super, super clear what God wants us. But I think most of us have felt most of us have experienced, most of us have had those moments in our life when we know that God is calling us to something or calling us away from something. Am I right? And what, really what it comes down to is that God is calling us in one way or another. He is calling us to his way and away from doing things our way. And instead of saying, here I am, Lord, which I know some of us have said that, here I am, Lord, what? I'm ready. Show me the way. I wonder how many times we have heard that call but said, God, yeah, I hear you, God, but um, hey, I, God, I need a little bit more time. God, I'm busy right now. You come back to me. Uh, don't, don't let me go, God. I, I got, just, just give me one time. I'm busy. Yeah, I know, God, but, but you don't understand. I can't go do that thing. I can't go talk about Jesus that way because I, I don't know enough of my Bible yet. I just, don't, I just don't, I don't know enough. I don't know enough as that person. I don't know as much as them. God, I understand, but you, I'm worried about whether other people are going to think of me. Or people are going to think I'm a freak, or they're going to think I'm a Jesus freak. And God, if I, if I become that person, then they're not going to listen to me anymore. They're not going to hear Jesus out of me because they're going to think I'm one of those people. God, I've got to approach it more slowly than you want me to because I don't want to be one of those people. God, you've got to come back to me at another time when there's a better time. I'm suffering right now. I'm having a really hard time right now. Like, I'm really struggling. God, can you come back when I'm not, I'm not struggling so hard? Can you get back? God, can you come back to me and call me again when it's just a little bit better time for me? Church, is that, is that maybe true in your life? Or at least maybe have been true in your life? I wonder how often that God's calling us out of something or into something, but we're so busy or we're, we're so self-focused or we're so whatever it is that we either don't hear the call or the call comes and we're like, wait, God, I'm about ready. I'm about ready. Praise God that that wasn't Moses' response. We know that Moses is not a perfect person, so this is not about his perfection, but that wasn't Moses' response. He says, here I am. And it doesn't mean that Moses has no doubts or fears. So I want, to hear that, I want you to hear this as you go through, as, as maybe conviction from the Holy Spirit comes about how you need to say, here I am, Lord, and move forward. It doesn't mean you never have any doubts or fears. We're going to see Moses had tons of doubts or fears, but it's about being available to God and saying, here I am, so that he can show us the path forward. Because normally when we say, here I am, Lord, show me where to go, we don't know the path forward yet. We're like Frodo, I'll go, but I don't know the way. But God wants to show us the way. We just have to say yes first step out in faith, and Moses steps towards God when he calls. And he approaches, and something interesting happens when Moses approaches the burning bush. That really doesn't, I don't think it happens anywhere else in Scripture. He tells Moses to take off his shoes, for he's standing on holy ground. He comes into the holy presence of God, and it's just in a small way, right? It's not the full presence of God. That, that could never happen, right? God's omniscient, omniscient, om, omnipresent. He's everywhere. God is not narrowed down to the size of a bush, right? His presence is more than that, but the angel of the Lord is indicating that in, in this small way, Moses is in so, some small way coming into the presence of God, and it's, he's now on holy ground because he's in the holy presence of God, and this is a big deal. This is, does not happen very often in the Old Testament. I know we look at these big stories where these things happen, but this is a very rare occurrence in the history of the world. But God says something else that's interesting. Don't come any nearer. Does that seem like a weird response to you? He starts to approach and then he says to Moses, don't come any nearer. This is the beginning of us seeing through the rest of the Old Testament in particular that um, we can only come so near to God's presence because God's presence is dangerous to us. Because God is so holy. 
He is so pure. He is so far beyond us. His very presence so completely and utterly rejects sin and evil. Like he is a purifying force against evil and sin. And so we can only come so much into his presence. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, right? When they were in the presence of God, they brought sin and evil into their heart by sinning against God. And their presence from God was separated and they were removed from the garden. It's because his holy presence would burn them away. So he comes, he approaches God, but God says, not not any closer. You're on holy ground now. Don't come any closer in my holy presence. It would have destroyed Moses. So God reveals himself to Moses. I am the God of your fathers, of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. And if you are with us, that's a big deal, right? Because the promises were made to their father Abraham that God would, would create and protect his people and take care of them. All the promises go back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So when the Bible says this, it's God reminding them, I am the God that made all the promises to you, and I remember my promises. Now, did you see Moses' response to God's holiness, to coming into the holy presence of God? What did he do? He hid his face, and he was afraid. Now, this is where I wanted to spend a lot of time today. Why did I cover a whole chapter, right? I don't have a lot of time, so I'm just going to say this. Um, How often do you respond to God in the same way? When you are confronted with the holiness of God. And in doing so, when you're confronted with the holiness of God, it's almost unavoidable. You're confronted with the depravity of your sin. Just how ugly your sin is compared to the holiness of God. How often when your sin is laid bare, when your lack of perfection is laid bare against God's holiness, do you hide your face? Do you turn away? See, we have something that Moses didn't have. We have Jesus Christ. And he came and died on the cross to make us pure, to make us holy, to wash, not just to forgive our sins, but to wash them away so that we could come into the presence of God. And then Jesus says, hey, you can come boldly before me. Come to me, right? Laid against God's holiness, we do see how sinful we are, but we also have a Savior who died on the cross to wash that sin away so that we could come boldly before the throne. Yet what I see over and over and over with people I disciple, people I talk to, that they feel they don't feel good enough to come to the presence of God. They don't feel good enough to, to genuinely pray and to read the word and disciple and talk to other people about their sin or about their struggles. So instead of running to the cross where they can be forgiven, where they can lay down their shame and guilt, because we should feel shame and guilt for our sin, but we don't hold on to it. We take to the cross and lay it down and let it be burned away by the holiness of God, that refining fire that is a blessing to us that love Jesus. Yet yet how often when you mess up, when you don't feel good enough, when you sin, does it create this big distance between you and God? And you don't feel good enough to pray or you don't feel, it doesn't feel right to get in the word or you just, what would happen if we didn't turn away from God? Like Moses turned away from God, but we turned to God because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. That's, that's where freedom is found. That's where holiness is actually found. Not in you wallowing in your shame and your guilt for a time until you feel good enough to come and talk to God again when you feel like it's worn off enough where you can come and approach him again. No, it's you, you go in the midst of the mess because God came to save sinners. He came to save his enemies because we can't wash ourselves clean. What if we turn to God instead of away from God? Because we have something Moses didn't have. We have Christ. So Moses turns away in fear. But God's not done with his beloved child, Moses, quite yet. Even though he turned away, he keeps talking and draws him back in. Look at verse 7 in chapter 3. Look at verse 7. Let's read through verse 12 this time. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cries because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my, bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, God said, But I will be with you, 
And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So verses 7 through 9 of this is basically just restating what Denver preached on last week in Exodus 2, 23 through 25. And I just loved how Denver said it. It's so Denver and so not me, right? But I just loved how he said it. He's like, read this and just hear the epic music playing. It's like when you're watching your favorite TV show and it gets to the end of the episode and all these bad things are happening and right at the end of the episode, the hero shows up and you, now, you know it's about to go down. That's what's happening right now. That was the end of chapter two and, and Denver just nailed that. I love that. This is that moment. God has come. This is the to be continued episode three. Here we go. Here we go. He has shown up and he says to Moses, I have seen and I know. The hero of the story is not you, you, Moses. It's me. And I have heard about, I have heard my people's cries. I know their affliction. I know them. They are my people. I know them. And I have come and I'm going to undo this. I'm going to undo it. This is God here showing us all the major themes of our book. If you haven't been with us, the major themes of Exodus for us is God's covenant faithfulness, God's deliverance, and God's presence. And you can see them all here. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I have come just like I promised I would come. Right? And I'm here to deliver you just like I promised that I would deliver you. I'm going to deliver you out of the strongest kingdom in the world into my kingdom, from that kingdom to my kingdom. And then lastly, his presence. His presence is not only here with Moses, but he's talking about the land flowing with milk and honey. That's the land where he will be their God and they will be his people, where his presence will dwell with them. He's bringing all of the major themes of the Bible, but in particular of Exodus together in this moment saying, I have arrived. I am here. Let's go. Let's go. I have heard. I know. Let's go. And man... I wish sometimes in these Old Testament texts they gave us a little bit more details. I wonder how Moses initially responded to this. We get his, his longer response of doubt and fear and all the things all of us would have felt, right? But I wonder in the moment, if the moment he was more like what Denver was talking about. Like he was talking like, I've heard of the oppression. I am the God, the God of your fathers, the God that you know, the God that you've heard of, and I've come and I've heard of the oppression. I'm going to set them free. If, if Moses was any part of it, was like, yes! Finally, he's here. He's going to undo this. Because if you remember, there's something in Moses that wants to deliver. There's something in Moses that wants to save. He's made some mistakes because he was pointed in the wrong direction. But Moses multiple times has, has tried or has saved people. He's delivered people from oppression or hurting or those trying to harm them. So I wonder if there's a part of Moses that was like, yes. Because that's inside of him. God built him for this. That is until um, God kept talking. And he said, yeah, Moses, I'm going. I am. I'm going to promise and deliver my people. And guess what? I'm sending you to go do it. I'm sending you to go confront Pharaoh. I wonder if he was like, yeah. Whoa, wait, what? I mean, that's the response we see now. What? Wait, what? Can you imagine how that must have landed on Moses? Because listen, Moses isn't some superhero. He's just like you. In fact, he's a nobody. Can you imagine how this would have landed on you? Can you imagine how intimidating this would have been? I can't even fathom how intimidated Moses must have been in this moment. Keep in mind, don't, don't let this slide for your mind. It's like going and confronting the most powerful man in the world. It's like being an enemy of the President of the United States if the President of the United States had way more power. I don't mean power in general, like Pharaoh, the buck stopped with him. He was the, he was the God man. Everything came down to what Pharaoh wanted or didn't want. And it'd be like some tiny little country that you've never heard of and a guy from that tiny little country that you've never heard of and nobody else in his country has really heard of him comes to the most powerful man in the world and says, you, hey, you got to let the people go. God commands it. Can you imagine? Pharaoh could kill Moses for way less than this. In fact, he's wanted for murder in Egypt as it is, yet God's telling him, hey, I'm going to send you back to the place you know, where, there's, where they want to kill you for murdering someone. Yeah, and you're going to confront the most powerful man in the world. And Moses responds the way I'm guessing virtually every person in this room would have responded. Wait, you mean me, God? Who, who am I to go call out Pharaoh and set your people free? Who, who am I? And so God tells him really the only thing he needs to know. I will be with you. I will be with you. And once you free the people, you're going to come back to this very mountain and you're going to worship me here. That's my promise to you, Moses, because I'm going to be with you. 
Now, considering all the doubts that must have been running through Moses' mind, and there were a lot, as we get into chapter 4 next week, you're going to see he's not done with doubts. He's not done with struggling. This is going to be him. I'm considering how many doubts, how many questions he must have had for God. His first question is actually a pretty fair one. It's a pretty good one. Look at it in verse 13 as Moses does the, thing, the, the brilliant thing of questioning God. Verse 13, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So this question from Moses, basically, what should I tell them is your name, might seem like a strange question at first, but I said it was a good question, right? So it's not a strange question, and here's why. We We don't think about it in this context. The Hebrews had been in Egypt, the Israelites, the Hebrews, had been in Egypt for how long? Ish. 400 years. Now again, we read ancient texts and we're like, man, 400 years. Think about where our world was 400 years. 1620. Think about our world in 1620 versus now. Right? Because we just hear 400 years. Oh, they were there a long time. No. This is like ages changing in the world. They were there for an incredibly long time. 1620? Are you kidding me? That's how long this thing was, 400 years before this moment. Now bring that into this story, how long that really is. And take this into context. Egypt had many, many gods, many warring gods, many different gods. In fact, I don't know if this is actually true, so I'm going to say this, but a historian, I read some history on ancient Egypt and actually just ancient society throughout the world. As far as we can know, according to historians, there was no monotheistic religions in the world at this time. None. Every person on the planet, as far as we know, worshipped multiple gods. A monotheistic religion, a monotheistic concept of God didn't even exist. So many of the Hebrews, 400 years? You know, many of the Hebrews would have forgotten who God is. It's possible they would have forgotten his name. It's possible that some of these Hebrews are worshipping the the Egyptian gods. And if we don't think that's true because, because the family line they come to, look what happens almost immediately when they actually get their land in the land of Israel, right? They immediately start worshiping these false gods. And some of these false gods, we can loosely maybe connect back to Egypt, right? So they immediately start, start worshiping these false gods. So a lot of them are probably worshiping the gods of Egypt, or they just forgotten who he is. 400 years, they just forgotten who the God of the Bible really is. And so in the context, that question makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? In a world with multiple gods, who am I to say that you are? What's what's your name? And God answers within what my opinion is one of the most epic answers ever. I love it so much. You tell them that I am the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And when when they ask what my name is, or when you tell them what my name is, you tell them this, I am Oh, I love it. I am. The actual Hebrew word here is what? Yahweh. Right? And the literal translation of Yahweh is to be. What an amazing response. That's, that's, that's his name, to be. It literally means I cause everything to be. Before anything, after everything, I am. God was not created He is not a God that competes with the other gods of this world. He's not limited like the other gods in this world in his power or scope. His majesty cannot be contained or stopped by like all the competing and warring gods, gods of the Egyptians. So basically God is saying, I don't have a name like all of these false gods that the world worships. I am. Boom. Oh, I love it. Listen, there's so much power in this name. There's so much power in the name Yahweh and I am that it's talked about in the Gospel of John. In John 8 in the New Testament, the religious leaders confront Jesus about who he actually is. Man, they're just pushing on him hard, hard. And you, do you know what Jesus' response to them when they ask really who he is? He says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. 
meaning before Abraham. And what Jesus meant in that moment, before all of this started, before anything, I am. Jesus was claiming to be the eternal name of God in this moment. And just in case you don't think he was, do you remember how the religious leaders responded when Jesus said that? They immediately started picking up stones to stone him to death because he just claimed the name of Yahweh for himself. John knew exactly who Jesus was. That's why he starts his book saying that before, before anything, before everything, Jesus was with God. Jesus was God. Jesus is the I am. Not a God. That's why I keep saying the I am. Not a God. The God. The only God. So in this moment with Moses, God fully reveals himself as the one and only God with absolute power and authority over everything, including these so-called gods in Egypt and the impotent power of Pharaoh. I am is commanding Moses to go in his name, to go in his power to Egypt and lead his people to redemption, to lead his people to deliverance over one of the most powerful forces in the world because their power Pharaoh's power is nothing compared to the glory and the majesty and the might of our holy God. Nothing. And you're going to see, it's reduced to nothing. It fires me up just thinking about it. I can't wait till we get to there. Like Pharaoh tries to stand up to God, and it's just a joke. The most powerful man in the world, it's a joke. So in verses 16 and 17, we're not going to read them, but God commands Moses to take this information to the elders of Israel. And he says, and to tell them, hey, listen, God knows you. And he knows about your oppression. He knows about your suffering. He knows what you've been through. Listen, he knows you. He's heard your prayers and he has answered. The creator of the universe, the creator God is coming for you and he is here. And then God expands even more in verse 18 of what Moses is to tell the elders of Israel. Look at verse 18 in chapter 3. And they will listen to your voice, the elders of Israel. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters so that you shall plunder the Egyptians. Now, again, I want us to try to picture this for a second, not just hear it as a story. But God tells Moses not only to go confront the most powerful man in the world, but you tell him that he's going to have to let your people go, let my people go a three days journey off into the wilderness to worship our God. Remember, big Egyptian gods are a big deal. He's saying, not, not your God, the God. To go now, now, in the ancient world, when you said, we're gonna go, I'm going to go three days away on a journey, it didn't literally mean three days. Right? I didn't know this until I studied. Right? It, it's, it's a figure of speech saying, I'm going on a long journey, I'll get back when I get back. So Moses, he's telling Moses, go to Pharaoh and say, the people of Israel are going to go worship, and we're going to go worship as long as we need to, and then, we'll, and then we'll come back, or we'll probably come back. That's kind of the implication in this. It's kind of like if you said, Dad, hey, um, can I borrow the car? The implication is, I need the car, I'm going to take the car, you can't use the car until I get back, and I'm going to get back when I get back if you don't set up a time, right? You're supposed to be home at 10, but you didn't tell me 10. I just, I just assumed I could stay out till midnight, but you didn't, right? That whole thing. There's an implication, can I borrow the car, of what that actually means. And if somebody didn't come from, didn't know English, they might not know what that actually meant, right? The implication when you say three days journey is we're going to go and we'll get back when we get back. And so Moses is to go and confront this man, say that thing to him, say that they need to go on a journey. But not only that, by the way, Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. The only thing that he's going to respond to is a mighty hand, meaning the only thing he's going to respond to is strength. Again, try to imagine Moses, the betrayer of his people. I mean, he was raised an Egyptian, and he betrayed them and killed an Egyptian. He took the side of the Hebrews. He was ran out of 
Egypt as a murderer and is now a shepherd, is a nobody, has got to go and confront the most powerful man in the world, tell him he's got to let his people go, and he knows it's not going to work when Pharaoh could have him killed without a second thought. But he's got to trust God to just go. I mean, he's going to lay down the gauntlet to Pharaoh and God say, you'll be good, I got you, go. Do you think Moses might have been a little sick at his stomach at this point? I don't even think that's conjecture because as we get into chapter 4, he keeps saying, well, but, but God, but, but God, but God, like I think he's just sick at his stomach like, are you, are you serious, God? And then God says something awesome. I've kind of already implied it, but I love it. He says, I know that Pharaoh will only respond to a strong arm, so I will bring my arm against him. Like, I just love that that poetry, right? And he says he will only respond to a mighty hand or a mighty arm. This is the implication of only strength, but God says, I'll bring my strength against him. And when I do, I'll bring him down. He's not going to let you go until I bring my mighty arm against him. So not only is God going to show Pharaoh what real strength and power is, which is going, I can't wait till we get there, but he also adds this, when you leave, I will give you such favor with the Egyptians that they're going to give you their wealth. Listen, I want you to hear, he said favor. We're going to see at the end all of these terrible things happen in Egypt. But it seems to me that a lot of the Egyptians blame Pharaoh, not Moses, not the, the God of the Bible. They, they willingly give their riches as they leave, and God's promising that. Do you know that's actually a fulfillment of God's covenant? Do you remember that? Genesis 15, can we get that one up there? Just a reminder, this was written hundreds and hundreds, not written, but this was promised hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before. Genesis 15, then the Lord said to Abram, to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, which has already happened, right? That's, we're in the middle of this. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. This is what God's promising. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. This is covenant faithfulness. This is God telling Moses so that he can relay it to the people of Israel I am your God, and I remember my covenant promises to you, and I am coming. I am coming to redeem you, and not only that, I will provide for you. God knows he's about to call them out into the desert for a long time, and they need provisions. They need to be taken care of, and God says, don't worry about this. Not only am I going to free you, but I'm going to give you wealth. I'm going to give you everything you need because I'm going to take care of you. You're my people. As I've mentioned before, we're going to see in next week in part two in chapter four, the questions and doubts about his ability to carry this out from Moses are going to continue. But here's what I want us to grasp this week. Here's what I want you to hold on to this week. Moses, if you've been with us so far, who's, who's never, it seems like he's never really been a guy that's known his place in the world. He's always kind of been this outcast, not really an Egyptian, not really Hebrew, not a Midian, right? He's always felt like an astronaut. He's never really seemed to know his, pur his purpose. He's always been a man kind of searching for his meaning, has the God of the universe telling him exactly what his purpose is, exactly how God wants to use his gifts, exactly how to use that thing in him that has always been there, and what is his response to God? Are you sure? God, but, dot, 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 this continues, but, God, but. Here's the truth, church. I, we're going to get there, but I think a lot of us are actually like Pharaoh. We haven't heard a lot about Pharaoh there, but we'll, we'll get there. I think a lot of us are like Pharaoh. God tells, tells us exactly what he wants and what he respects, and we even believe in his power. Pharaoh is going to believe in the power of the God of the Bible. He might not at first, but he'll believe. Right? He'll believe. We believe in the power of God, yet we still just stubbornly do it our own way because we want to. Because it's our life, whether we say that or not. But we're going to get to that in the coming weeks. I think we're a lot... For this week, I want, I want all of us, because this is all of us, I want all of us to just own one thing. We are all Moses. We are all Moses. Through the Word of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit within us, if you are a believer, we know what God wants, don't we? We might not know every tiny little detail, but we know what God wants. He wants us to worship Him and glorify Him, to love Him. Right? He wants us to grow and serve and love each other within the church as individuals and as a body so that we might grow up into spiritual maturity and be conformed to the image of Christ so that we might give Him more glory. And He wants us to go love our neighbor as ourselves. 
And that can play out in a lot of different ways, but there's no more important ways than going out there and telling people about Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Redeemer, giving them so that they can have hope. Nothing more important than going and making disciples. There's so much more we could say about what God wants from us because he loves us, but that's right at the heart of it. Love God, love people, go make disciples. It's crazy clear. But when that goes past just words and it actually needs to move into action in our lives, I think so often we are like Moses in our response. Yeah, God, but. Yeah, I hear you, God, but. But I have a lot going on. But God, I don't know what to say. I don't know what I'm supposed to say. But, but God, I don't know enough of the Bible yet. But God, I'm worried about looking like a fool. But, but, what will, but God, what will people think of me? But God, I simply don't know enough. But God, I'm simply, I'm just afraid of, of what, saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing. But God, there are so many of those but gods out there for all of us. I mean, here's the thing, church. Here is the good news. This is not about condemnation day. Here's the good news. God doesn't need you to be the hero. Because he's the hero. We so often we're looking at ourselves as the hero, so we're afraid you don't save anyone. This story isn't about Moses' gifts. This story isn't about his talents. It's not even about his faithfulness. Not really. It's a part of the story, but it's not the point of the story. This moment right now is about God, not Moses. And a lot of us have been taught that this is about Moses, and you can be like Moses, and you can have the faith of Moses. No, Moses, honestly, Moses in this moment is kind of a joke, like the rest of us can be when we think too much of ourselves. He's a nobody. He's questioning God. He's in the, how many of us have said, I wish God would just speak to me. I wish I could see a miracle. I wish God would do this thing, and then I would know. Moses knows, and he still says, but God, because he's just like all of us. A miracle is not going to prove anything to you except for make you feel good for a while. Right? That's who we are. This is this story. Our, the story of this, your life, the story of our faith, the story of our church is not about us being a, the hero. This story is about God. And this moment with Moses is not about Moses. It is about the I am. I am it's about the one who is the beginning and the end. It is about the one who is the alpha and the omega. It is about the one who is the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer, and the judge of all, saying to Moses and saying to every one of us, I'm not sending you because of you. I'm sending you because I am. Because I am the I am. And I'm telling you to go, and then I'll be with you. Church, you don't need great talent and you don't need perfect words, and you don't need a great depth of knowledge, and you don't even need unshakable faith. Yes, pursue all of those things, but that's not what you need. You need the I am. You just say to the Lord, here I am, Lord, though I do not know the way, and God will show you the way. He will give purpose to your steps. He will give power to your words. And through you, he will give salvation and hope to the lost and far off. Because that is what he does. Like Frodo, like Moses, your job isn't to know the way. Your job is to say to God, I will go. I don't know the way, but I'll go. To say to God, I will go and do as you command. Because you are the I am, and I am not. As I mentioned before, church, let me close with this. You have something that Moses never had. Think about that. One of the greatest men of the Bible, still telling stories about him three, four thousand years later, and you have something he never had. We get to know the personification of this God. We get the privilege of knowing that he literally came to the earth for us and not only to bring us deliverance from the slavery of sin and so that we could be forgiven, but by washing us clean, the I am now lives inside of us. Where It's not like coming into his presence like Moses did. The presence of God through the Holy Spirit now lives inside of you. And because of that, you can come to God boldly. You've been given more than the people of Israel ever had. All of them. You have more than they ever had because the I am died for you. Because the I am, if you're in Christ, lives inside of you. And because we know that the I am has kept every promise to you. 
We get the benefit of history and we get the benefit of Jesus. So you can go out into the world with absolute confidence, knowing that it isn't your power that saves and redeems, but his. Say it to yourself over and over and over and over. This is not about me and my gifts. This is about God. This is about what he is promising me. And you walk out there with confidence sometimes that you don't even feel because the I am is with you. And hear this too. Don't be ashamed if you're afraid or if you have doubts at times. Moses was afraid. Moses had doubts. It's okay. But don't let those things hold you back. The I am is sending you into the world to proclaim his glory and the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have everything you need in him, church. So, so really, in the end, the only question that's left is where you, will you go where he calls, even though you might not know the way? I pray that you'll take that serious, and I pray that you will go not because of you, but because of the I am. Let's pray. Oh God, I am so thankful for your word. How lost would we be if you didn't love us enough to inspire people to write these words and empower it through your Holy Spirit so that we may know you, that we may follow you. So many people lost in this world trying to seek out who they are, who you are, what it means to be a God, the God, but we get to know. You want us to know who you are. So much so that you came down out of heaven so that we could truly know you and see that you love us, that you are for us. And as we said and sang today, that so we could really understand that your mercy is greater than all of our sin. Oh God, what a blessing. God, I pray you'd help us today. We are selfish creatures. We are self-focused and we are prideful and we are fearful. And God, I know, and I think a lot, of, a lot of us in this room know that it holds us back from being who we're meant to be, who we could be in you. So God, once again, as we, every week we cry out, help. I thank you for people like Moses and other people in Scripture that show us that, God, you never meant for us to be perfect. That we don't have to be ashamed if we doubt sometimes, if we, our faith doesn't seem strong enough sometimes, that you are faithful even when we're unfaithful. And so, God, we cry out help today. As we say all the time, we believe, but help our unbelief. We have faith, but help our unfaithfulness. God, I don't know where you're calling each individual in this room this morning. But I pray that you would help them to hear. God, I pray that you would help them to know. And God, I pray you would help them to take steps forward. To cast aside the fear and the doubt and all the excuses and to trust their hearts, their minds, their life, and their actions to you, the I am. For you're the one that causes everything to be. So help us to be what we are meant to be in you. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for us on that cross so that your spirit may live inside of us. I pray that it will guide all of us to you into action. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need prayer, church, I would love to pray with you. I'll be over here on the bench. I think another person or two might join me. If you need to pray about anything at all, I would love to pray with you, talk with you. Um, please come talk with me. Otherwise, why don't you stand and let's worship God together.